Welcome to Knowing Nature, a show about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm Victor, and this episode is a special solo episode. This is going to be the start of a series on exploring nature from the comfort of your own home. And this week, I'm talking about birds from home. There's loads of challenges in engaging with nature, and a lot of them have to do with differences in scale. There's differences in uh, time scale, talking about very short lengths of time or very long lengths of time that we're not used to thinking in. There's also problems with size. So often when we're looking at nature, we're talking about things that are really small or really big, again, on scales that we're not used to thinking about. There's also challenges in geography because nature doesn't respect national boundaries. Uh, it just goes wherever it likes. So in this series of episodes, we're going to be exploring different ways of getting around those challenges. So this week, birds. So with birds, when we use them as an example of migration, there's a particular problem with time and geography. And that's because migration, we don't see that pattern in birds until we start looking across multiple years. And in terms of geography, because birds can fly, and so often their migration takes place over hundreds or thousands of kilometers. So what is migration? Migration is a cyclical movement from one place to another in response to some kind of stimulus. There can be daily migrations. A lot of this will happen in water. You'll get um, animals that move up and down in the water on a daily cycle. So during the night, they might be deeper down in the pond. During the day, they might be further up. Uh, or it might be the reverse, as in the case of squid, uh, they'll make a, a vertical migration. So they'll spend the nights deep down in the ocean and then they'll come up closer to the surface to feed. Meanwhile, things like algae and small plankton, they'll spend the nights deeper down in the water. Uh, and during the day when the sun is shining and photosynthesis uh, is happening and active, they'll migrate closer up to the surface to feed. You also get seasonal migration. Famous examples of this are, of course, the movement of large herds across Africa following the rains. Um, and you've also got, of course, migration of birds from polar regions to regions a bit closer to the equator. Studying migration is really difficult because we're talking about very long distances. We can be talking about, in the case of seasonal migration, changes that happen over quite long periods of time, so across the course of an entire year. Uh, and we can also be dealing with really large groups of animals. So makes it really difficult for us to figure out what any one individual animal might be doing. Ways in which this is studied nowadays with our modern technology, we can use GPS and satellite tracking, but this can be quite difficult because it's uh, it can be expensive to do to equip a GPS tracker onto an individual animal. So often when we're gathering this kind of data, we can't gather it on large numbers of animals. It has to be done on only a few individuals. Um, but still, in, in a lot of cases, we can use that as an indication of the kind of thing that generally happens. A little bit easier, we can tag or mark individual uh, animals. Um, and that can be done using maybe colored spots or markings. Or in the case of birds, we can put rings on their legs, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And then there's just observations. So just looking out your window, looking in your local park, making observations, watching what happens there um, from day to day, week to week, season to season. The traditional method of studying birds is by using rings. And these will be small rings that are attached onto the leg of a bird. And the rings uh, identify them 
either in might be a series of color bands, in which case the, the pattern of colors is what identifies an individual bird, or often you'll see small metal rings and those will often have a number code on it. And that again helps to identify the individual bird. So bird watchers or ornithologists, when they're out bird watching, they're looking out for these rings and they'll record where and when they saw these rings and what the code on the ring was. You can then go to a few different organizations that coordinate the use of these rings, because of course, when uh, we're doing these rings, there needs to be coordination between all these different people who are studying birds. Because if you have a duplicate number, you'll get the individual birds mixed up. In the UK, our bird ringing is coordinated by the BTO, the British Trust for Ornithology. And we're actually part of a larger European research group. And the ringing uh, across Europe is coordinated by an organization called U-Ring, E-U-R-I-A-G. And they basically just keep a big register of all the different ring combinations and number codes, what institutions are using these, just so that that data can all have a central repository because of course, again, birds don't respect national boundaries. They just fly wherever they want to fly. And that means that over the course of a year, a bird might travel between several different countries. It might travel across different continents. Um, so you kind of need a central place to store all this data for it to really become useful. Otherwise, you'll end up with uh, the situation that we used to have way back in the day before we really had a good understanding of migration back in the 1400s or 1500s or so, you know, people noticed that certain groups of birds, they would disappear at different times of year. Famous example of this is the barnacle goose. The barnacle goose is a black and white striped goose, not a big goose. And it was known from areas like Scotland and the Netherlands. And in these areas, these geese would appear in the winters, and then when spring came, they would disappear. And for centuries, no one had ever seen, uh, or at least recorded seeing, one of their eggs or nests. And that's because now we know that these birds fly much farther north to areas like Greenland or Svalbard, and they breed there. But because we didn't know that, we thought that these geese just kind of appeared from nowhere. Along the coasts, people were familiar with these strange creatures. They had long necks and like what looks like little bills uh, called the gooseneck barnacles or what we now call gooseneck barnacles. And people used to think that this is where geese came from. They hatched. They hatched from these barnacles fully formed. But with sharing records from different places uh, around the world, so when we had larger populations in Greenland and they were able to share what they could see with people from Europe, they just found out that Oh, in the summer months, thousands of these geese appear in Greenland. And then in the winters, thousands of geese appear in Northern Europe. And so we've connected the dots and figured out that ah, these geese are actually making quite an incredible journey over hundreds of miles traveling to these different areas. So in summer, they're further up north where days are longer. So there's more sunlight. That means more plant growth. And that means more food for these geese. Then when winter comes, they travel south to milder climates where they can feed over the winter. What bird watchers will do to uncover patterns like this is they'll often go to places where they know that they can spot birds. 
And that's because birds will return to the same spot year after year. So in the case of geese, they'll often go to the same kind of fields or waterways that they've been to in previous years because those are good feeding spots. And those waterways in particular can act as important navigation tools. They can use landscape markers to help find their way. So you can follow the length of a river, for instance. And that's one of the amazing things about bird migration is how these birds know where to go. How do they find their way over these incredibly vast distances? And scientists have conducted a, a whole range of experiments to try and rule out or rule in different ways of navigation. And basically what we've found so far is that birds use almost every method of navigation that you can possibly imagine. So some experiments have shown that some birds will use scents. We know they can use physical landscapes. Um, more recent studies have found out that they might be able to use things like polarization of sunlight so they can look at the angle of sunlight and use that to figure their way. Some will use the stars or the moon. And again, more recent experiments have shown that birds can detect magnetic fields. And we think they do it because of quantum level interactions uh, inside them. So uh, we think that light entering birds' eyes create these quantum entangled particles. And these particles have a characteristic called spin, which can be influenced by magnetic fields. So we think that that's a way in which they can navigate. So this brings us to a first sort of activity idea to, to do perhaps with classes or kids is have them list every possible way of finding your way around and maybe design an experiment to see if they can to test how birds might use that way of navigation in order to find their way. So for instance, in terms of using the sun, you might design an experiment where you put the bird in a small box and have a light source coming from one direction and see what the birds do in response to that. And this is an experiment that has was really done on um, small birds, and they found out that birds, they tended to uh, hop in a particular direction in response to this sunlight, which suggests that the birds use light as an indication of, of what direction in order to go. So they tended to hop in one direction more than others. So how can you make that experiment more rigorous? Then might be the next step in the experiment. So you might reorient the box, so maybe turn the box 90 degrees to the left clockwise or counterclockwise, and then put your light source on again and see what direction does the bird hop. Um, if they hop in the same direction as they did before, the same compass direction, even though the light is coming in from a different direction, that might indicate that they're using something other than the direction of light to navigate, like a magnetic field, for instance. However, if they continue to hop more in the direction of the light, then that's stronger evidence that they're using light as a way of navigating. So you can use this as kind of an activity idea, is sort of pick any way of navigation. Smell, for instance. How can you design an experiment to test smell. And then the next step would be to figure out how can you change your experiment just a little bit in order to remove some of the variables. And that's exactly what scientists will do as well. They'll come up with a test and they'll come up with just small tweaks to the test that they can do when they run the experiment again to uh, control for certain variables like magnetic field or direction of the sunlight or other visual cues. And you might control for those variables by putting them in a box to block out some of those visible cues. You might put them 
in a special kind of metal cage that blocks out magnetic fields. You might pump in smells from particular directions. You might need fans to circulate the air. Um, so just a fun thought experiment to do with kids. And then next step might be to then have your kids or your students research actual experiments that scientists have done to study whether or not birds use that way of navigating and look at how well the experiments that they've thought up line up with the experiments that scientists have conducted. And maybe actually your kids or your students will have come up with a totally new way of testing a particular way of navigating, which would be really exciting. Uh, in which case, you might want to then write up your experimental design proposal and just send it in to an organization that conducts these kinds of experiments and, and see what response you get. A lot of organizations like um, science magazines or museums uh, love hearing from the public about these experiments. And also they might then be able to forward it on to scientists who can actually conduct those experiments for you. Another simple way of studying birds is just by spotting birds. It's just looking out your window and seeing what birds are there and when are they coming to visit. Now, if you do start spotting birds from out your window, just keep track of your sightings. What kinds of birds are you seeing? When are you seeing them? Where are they hanging out? What are they doing? Record their behavior. And what that'll let you do is start to get to know the individual characters in your neighborhood. So outside my window, for instance, I know that I get, um, there's a pair of blue tits that tend to hang around and I get a family of goldfinches as well that come by and there's uh, about five of them that hang out. But in the summers, there can be a few more and that's because I'm pretty sure they're nesting nearby because I'll see the juveniles come by around and they've got more scruffy looking coloring than the adults do. And these things I've learned just by looking out my window and seeing what birds hang around. Now, spotting birds can be difficult, and oftentimes you might think that just birds don't come by and visit your, air, your area. But there are, of course, some tricks that you can do to make spotting birds a bit easier to track them in to wherever you are. A uh, very simple way is bird feeders. You can put up a bird feeder. You can make your own bird feeder, and there's any number of bird feeder designs out there on the internet, and of course you can buy pre-made ones. Now when you're positioning one of these bird feeders, if you're doing this at home, I recommend putting the bird feeder somewhere where you can see it from your window, from the inside. And also somewhere, maybe not right next to a window, because of course birds get a little bit nervous when people are around. So if you're walking around inside your house, that can disturb them. If you set them uh, a couple meters away, that's often enough distance that the birds don't mind if you are walking around. Through. You can get bird feeders that stick onto your windows and then the birds get right up close. Uh, I have one of those and they do work, but I found that I've got lines that I can draw. And what I do is the window that the bird feeder is on, I keep the blinds down a bit and what I can do is peek through the blinds and I can see the birds from inches away. Um, so that might be an option as well. So the first instance bit easier, keep the bird feeder somewhere visible but not right up next to your house. If you do decide to get one of those stick on the window bird feeders, see if there's some way for you to, to camouflage yourself, I guess, from the inside so that you can actually take advantage of the fact that the birds are so close. And of course, there's also nest boxes or bird houses. Now is a really good time to put those up because this is the time of year when birds are starting to look for those nesting sites. If you wait too long, the birds will have 
chosen all their nesting sites and you'll have to wait until the next year for them to work. Now to go along with both of these you can get wildlife cameras nowadays and they're not super cheap but they're not crazy expensive at the moment anymore. You can get ones for as little as 50 pounds, 60 pounds, thereabouts. Uh, and what you might want to do is see if you can make friends with your neighbors and maybe split the cost with them. Uh, a lot of them nowadays, they can stream their footage so they're connected via Wi-Fi. So, you know, you, your neighbors can share the same camera and stream it onto their computers so you can all see them together from the comfort of your own homes. There's also, if you don't have space for all of these, loads of Nestbox webcams nowadays. So. Birds like peregrines, they will often nest in the same spot on very tall buildings. So what a lot of places have done is actually put cameras that point at these nests so that you can uh, watch, so that anyone can watch them from their own home. So look up peregrine cams or osprey cams on the internet and you'll find there's lots of them. Now, if you are watching birds from your home uh, and you do spot one with ring on it, again, you might want to record, if you can, uh, what that ring number is or what the color pattern of, of plastic bands are and send them in. So if you are in Europe, you'd go to the U-Ring website, E-U-R-I-N-G, again, and the link to that will be in the show notes, and um, submit your sighting of that track. And on the U-Ring website, they've also got some quick findings that they've come up with over the years. So for instance, they've got lifespans for some birds, and from these ring records, they found out that individual birds of some species can live as long as 50 years, which is pretty amazing. Now, spotting birds, uh, spotting this information just with your eyes can be quite difficult. If you've got a pair of binoculars at home, you might try using that, um, using those. And of course, you can take photos. And taking photos, I think, is a great way of getting to know the birds in your area because it allows you more time to study the characteristics of an individual bird. And that means that even if the bird doesn't have a ring on it, you might still be able to identify an individual bird based on things like colored patches on their feathers. They might have battle scars from run-ins with predators or cats or things. And individual birds might have different behavioral quirks, just like people, you know, birds will have their own little quirks as well. And you might be able to use those again to start to identify those characters of birds that come and visit you in your neighborhood. Now, what if you're a teacher and you'd like to start incorporating birds into your lessons, but you find it quite difficult? And that's quite understandable because the school year is often split into terms or semesters, and you'll cover a particular topic in as little as a few weeks. Now, it can be really difficult to see examples of a topic in real life because, again, they take much longer than a few weeks. You won't see migration, really. You won't see the pattern of it within a school year. It needs to happen across a few school years. And here, again, is where keeping a record of what you or your class sees, uh, you can refer to that record of data in following years. So a class one year might keep records of what birds visit their bird feeder each week maybe. And then what you can do the next year is start referring back to the data collected by last year's class. And when you do that, then that's when the, the payoff is. You start to see patterns emerging of um, times of year when certain birds start to appear or where they visit your bird feeders more frequently. And that's when you can start to talk about migration and when do these birds appear or disappear or when are they appearing at your bird feeders more frequently than at other times. And that opens up discussions of where might these birds be going? Why might they be going there? Why are they coming to your bird feeder more often in the winter than in the summer? 
traps. Planning ahead, um, think about when is a good time to actually put up bird feeders, and that's very early in the year. Um, depending on where you live, it might be as early as February or now or March. Um, and if you live further north, it might be slightly later going into April. But again, you need to plan ahead. And in terms of nest boxes and bird feeders, a class activity might be designing these nest boxes or bird feeders. You can do them on computer. You could do them on graph paper. It's a great exercise in geometry because uh, you need to measure, you need to calculate the required lengths. There's really good problem solving involved because you need to account for things like the thickness of the wood and uh, loss of wood in cutting. Because if you're cutting wood on um, a saw, you'll often lose a millimeter or two as the sawdust that falls down onto the ground. So you need to kind of account for those things in your measurements. So what you might want to do is actually get um, corrugated cardboard and do a mock-up in that because it's a bit cheaper and easier than wood and using that to work out problems in your measurement. And if you make your own, then of course you can also design and decorate your birdhouses and choosing the colors. And here again is an opportunity to think about experimental design. So does color affect how likely a bird is to use your bird feeder or your nest box? How does size affect what birds come and visit it? Could you change the size of the holes in your bird feeder and see if that affects what birds can come and use it? And then again, how can you tweak your experiment to make your results more robust? How can you account for variables like um, the time of year? Because time of year might affect how often a bird comes to visit your bird feeder. And here again, you might want to keep these uh, experimental results from one year and refer back to them in the next year because you might start to see patterns appear on those larger time scales. So if you do have a class and you're worried about losing curriculum time by coming back to the same topic across the whole year, you might be able to find ways of incorporating this topic into different subject areas in just really short exercises. So for instance, if you spend a few minutes uh, observing at a bird feeder, your class might then have a very short exercise just to describe what they've seen. It's a really good opportunity to help them with their vocabulary because you need to use words that you might not normally come across in order to describe them, words like preening or pecking. Or if they're lucky enough to hear the birds singing or calling, then how will you describe that? Is it a sharp sound? Is it shrill? Are they trilling? Are they cooing? Are they clucking? If you've got younger kids and you're worried about spelling, they, you can rely on things like onomatopoeia. And that's where you form a word just from letters in order to match kind of the shape of the sound. That can be really good practice with phonetics. And the nice thing about that, describing these bird songs, is that there's not really a right or a wrong answer. It's a very low pressure exercise. The kids just choose the letters that together form the sounds that they're hearing. You know, they don't have to word, use a word like trilling or cooing or clucking. But then you might also, for older kids, discuss what's the benefit of using a word like trilling or cooing or clucking. And that's the fact that these have well-established meaning so that when an ornithologist reads those words, they immediately get an idea in their head of what kind of sound it is. Sometimes a word that you form just by putting letters together, while it might match the sound that you hear, it can be 
perhaps difficult to interpret that, um, particularly in the UK where you get loads of regional accents. So you might read, it's the same combinations of letters, but in different regions, the way that you would say that combination of letters might be different because of your regional accent. So having set words for bird songs kind of helps make, make it more universal. And that's why you use clear scientific terminology. However, using onomatopoeia helps you capture some of that subtlety as well. Because of course, pigeon, different species of pigeon, they might coo, but they might still sound really different. The, the character of that cooing can be quite different. And with quacking in ducks, you know, you get whistling ducks that make more whistling sounds. You make call ducks that make really loud quacks. You get other species of duck that are really quiet, might make really quiet quacking noises. And you don't get that just by using a word like quack. You, know, you need to use more description. So just a short episode this week, all about some different ideas for engaging with birds from home. Uh, look for notes on all of these ideas at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. If you've got any questions or comments, you can send them to us at knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. And that's it for this episode. This has been Knowing Nature. Thanks for listening.